Well, good morning again. I didn't introduce myself before. I'm Wes Holmes, one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to be bringing God's Word to you all this morning. Um, Who can doubt His willingness to save? The arms of Jesus are open wide to us, and I hope we'll hear that as we approach our text this morning. It's a short text, so please open with me uh, to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. We are continuing in our series. It's been a while since we've been in it, uh, but we've been going through the Ten Commandments, taking them one at a time. In fact, uh, this morning is the Sixth Commandment. Um, It's a short text, but please give ear uh, to the word of the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray as we come to him. Father in heaven, we need to hear from you this morning. Uh, As we consider this short but profound law that you have given us, may your spirit be at work in our midst, speaking to our minds, changing our hearts, and lifting us to Jesus. So meet us here, we pray, and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Are any of you game show fans? Well, even if you're not, you have to admit that um, you do learn some really interesting things about human nature on a game show. Uh, There was actually a recent episode of Family Feud, where one of the fast money challenges, apparently, uh, which surveyed 100 people with this question. This is the question that they were asked. How many of the Ten Commandments have you broken this month? So the survey was given. How many of the Ten Commandments have you broken this month? And the contestant is supposed to guess, right? How many did this 100 people, you know, what was the majority answer to that question? Was it three? Was it seven? It was one. It was one. But let's not ask if they knew what all the Ten Commandments were when they were asked this question. But it is interesting to to point out that, you know, it seems that most people are willing to admit that, yes, you know, I've broken the rule. I'm not perfect. I'm an occasional sinner. But how many of us would go so far as to say that we are desperately and horribly sinful in every part of of our being. Does that seem a little extreme? How would you respond if you were asked how many times have you broken the Ten Commandments this month? What if someone asked you how many times you've broken the Sixth Commandment? How many times have you been convicted of murder? Maybe you're sitting here and you're feeling pretty safe on that one because you're not currently in prison. But what I want to ask us this morning is should we be so confident? As we consider the Sixth Commandment this morning, we're considering really just two Hebrew words. In the original language, it's just two words, which can also be translated, never murder. Imperative. And we'll look at this law, uh, not only with the negative prohibition of murder, but also with the implied positive command of what God is positively calling us to do instead of murder. And so three points are going to guide our consideration together this morning. First, Life is the Lord's. Second, death is the Lord's. And third, eternal life. Eternal life. And I want us to walk away this morning understanding that 
life is the Lord's to give and to take away. And He gives freely eternal life to all who trust in Him. Life is the Lord's to give and to take away. And He freely gives eternal life to all who trust in Him. And so our first point this morning, we need to begin with some background as we look at the fact that life is the Lord's because the Bible teaches us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All that exists, the universe, the stars and the the planets, the galaxies, the world and everything that is in it, all that has life and breath, our pets, our neighbors, our friends, our family, ourselves, all created and even now sustained by the Almighty God. Even the unseen spiritual realities are God's handiwork. And this is what the saints and angels declare about the one who sits on the throne of heaven in Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So the very first chapter of the Bible affirms this, and it also teaches us that God created creatures that live in the air, that live under the sea, that live on the earth. And when God created man, he created him in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, it says, and he became a living being. Friends, the Lord is the giver of life. The Lord is the giver of life. Only he can do it. Life will never just spontaneously generate, no matter how long you might wait for that to happen. God alone is the author of life, and the world that he has made is bursting with it. It's all around. When's the last time that you went for a hike and and you slowed down long enough to really pay attention to the ground? Now, kids, you're pretty good at this. (laughs) I think maybe it's because you're a little closer to the ground than the grown-ups, right? Um, But you notice what's going on on the ground, and, and if you take the time to look, what do you see? All kinds of small creatures scurrying about. There's insects, reptiles, small mammals, all busy with what God has given them to do that day. When you think about it, isn't just the sheer number and diversity of life stunning. There are entire species in the ocean that still haven't been discovered. Scientists and biologists give their entire lives to the study of the the creatures and the things that God has made, the living things, and, and we're still learning more and more every day. Amazing. Amazing. But mankind, even more amazingly, was made special by God above the other creatures to live forever with him in a relationship of fullness and joy, love and and glory. When God made human beings in his own image, they were very good. The Lord created us, you and me, to reflect his character, to walk in knowledge and righteousness and holiness with him into eternal life. This was his purpose from the very beginning. And God gave Adam and Eve, our first parents, a test. He gave them a test to 
Give them that opportunity to show themselves to be who they were made to be. He said to them, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right here we have to stop and pause and see the connection here to the sixth commandment. Right? Here's the sixth commandment in, in many ways in its essence in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were called to obey God upon penalty of death. You see, the command against murder not only prohibits unlawful killing, and we'll get to that in our second point, it also calls us to protect and preserve life, including our own. So Adam and Eve were to fulfill God's law by their obedience to his command, and so keep their lives and walk into eternal life with God. For Adam and Eve, this was a matter of life and death. And in the sixth commandment, God calls us to protect, to preserve the life of ourselves and others. And so for Adam and Eve, this meant obedience to God and the reward then of eternal life. Well, the the very practical implications for us today um, are grounded ultimately in loving our neighbor as ourselves. If you and I are made aware of the needs of our neighbor, and those needs are within our ability to meet, then you and I are called to meet them with love, with kindness, with compassion. There's a Puritan, Thomas Watson, who puts it this way, we should comfort them, our neighbor, in their sorrows, relieve them in their wants, and like the good Samaritan, pour wine and oil into their wounds, to care for them. So to turn a blind eye to our neighbor who is in need is really to deny the value of their life. And we are commanded by God to take measures to protect life, especially those among us who are most vulnerable. We think of the lives of the unborn. We think of the lives of those living in abject poverty. And friends, we're also called to care for our own lives. And that's not just a command against suicide, but how often do we destroy our bodies with food and drink, or with a lack of care for proper exercise or needed health care? The New Testament tells us that as Christians, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where God dwells. And so really to protect and preserve our own lives is for God's sake, the one who dwells within us. So I want to ask you, how is God calling you to look after your own life? How does he want you to be caring for the lives of those around you? Get specific. You see, a failure to protect and care for life inevitably will result in one thing, namely death. And that brings us to our second point. Death is the Lord's. That may sound strange to us because first we need to affirm that God is not the author of death. Sadly, we are the ones who get the credit for that. You probably know the rest of the story of Adam and Eve. They were tempted by the devil in that garden. They were tempted to reject God's law and assert their own authority 
And by that action, they introduced sin and death into God's perfect world. You see, it was mankind's rebellion against God that ultimately brought that consequence of death. Death is God's judgment for sin. As Paul writes in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. And here's Adam and Eve taking their life into their own hands, rejecting the authority of God, and plunging the whole world into a state of sin and misery. Friends, it's not our place to take that kind of authority upon ourselves, to take the authority upon ourselves to decide who lives and who dies, including our own life. That doesn't mean, however, that man's life should never be taken. There is nuance here. Isn't it true that sometimes a person's sin is rightly met with death? We actually see this all the way back in Genesis 9. Uh, after the flood, God was speaking to Noah, promising never to destroy the world again in a flood, but he also gave Noah this law of retribution, saying to him, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So this is a matter of justice. This is a matter of righteousness, which sometimes requires that for murder, the just consequence is, in fact, death. The New Testament also affirms this, Romans 13, where Paul is acknowledging that civil authorities bear the sword for the purpose of upholding justice. So this killing, right, this, this kind of just, this enforcement of what is right and just is not a breaking of the Sixth Commandment. Uh, in this also falls the, the idea of the just war theory, um, this idea that's proposed as a, as a distinct matter from breaking the commandment, um, something distinct from an unlawful killing, because there are times when a nation will need to go to war for the sake of protecting life. Even God himself led his people into holy war for his own righteous and holy ends. And we'll see more of that as we continue on. But there are many specifics about how to apply this in any given situation. It becomes very complex very quickly. Um, at the end of the day, what we have to do is rely on the wisdom that God gives us. Rely on the basic principles of his law to guide us and seek his wisdom to apply that rightly. But at its most basic, the Sixth Commandment prohibits us from claiming for ourselves the authority to take the life of another image-bearer of God. And this life-taking doesn't only refer to what we might think of, you know, cold-blooded murder. It also refers to that kind of hot rage that we have that, that would lead to murder, or even um, manslaughter by negligence and failure to take the right precautions. At the end of the day, the murder that God prohibits goes all the way to the heart. Jesus himself said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
You see, murder is a matter that begins in the heart with anger, with hatred and envy. And if you take even a cursory look at the events of human history, you will find countless stories of murder, manslaughter, and tragic loss of human life. Friends, this is not the way it should be. And it all starts right here in the heart. Consider the story of Cain and Abel. Now remember, this is the third and fourth human being to ever walk the face of the earth. And Cain murdered his own brother. Why? Why commit this horrible act? It was envy. Cain was envious of the acceptance that Abel received from God for his sacrifice that he did not. And so his anger raged in his heart, and murder was the result of his hands. Friends, we can say that the same is true of us. Even if we haven't physically murdered someone, we all have had the experience of harboring unrighteous anger towards someone. Have you cursed others with your lips? Committed mental murder against them with your malice? Have you used your position of power and authority to abuse someone under you for your own selfish gain? This is no small thing. When we break the sixth commandment, friends, we join league with the father of lies. In John's gospel, Jesus refers to the devil as a murderer from the beginning. He didn't actually kill Adam and Eve, but he certainly led them into death by his deception and his hatred of them. Ultimately, murder isn't simply an offense against another human being, but ultimately against God himself. Thomas Watson, that Puritan author I mentioned a moment ago, notes that murder is a wrong offered to God's image. It is tearing God's picture and breaking in pieces the king of heaven's broad seal. In our murderous acts and words and attitudes, we are actually in our hearts seeking to overthrow God and all that represents him. So I hope we see that it's not a matter of whether or not you have kept the sixth commandment this month. But in how many ways have you broken it? By failing to do what it requires? Protecting, preserving life, or transgressing what it forbids? Here we are, called to protect and preserve life, but instead we treat that life with contempt. And our hearts are filled with hatred. God alone friends, possesses the authority to take life, and he does it on account of our sin. The Apostle James tells us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So all of us are culpable, not only by our failure in obedience, but by our very nature, inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Death is our due. Really, eternal death is our future. Cut off from the goodness of God forever. But thanks be to God, friends. This is not the end of the story. It won't always be like this. And so our third point, life 
everlasting. And we can come to this third point because Jesus came to save. The eternal Son of God came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he did it by taking on a human nature to himself, showing us what true life actually looks like. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus lived the fullest life that has ever been lived on the face of the earth. Jesus loved his neighbor with his whole heart. He perfectly protected and preserved life, performing miracles, healing, feeding the multitudes. And he became for us himself the bread of life. Not only that, but he submitted himself to the grim reality of death as our substitute. Though you and I deserve to die for our hatred of God, Jesus received the death penalty for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. Jesus faced the worst kind of human death, crucified, bearing the Father's wrath for our sin. But his life was more powerful than the grip of death. And he overcame the grave and was raised to live forevermore so that people like us, people who have sinned time and again, who have broken each of his commands in more ways than we even know, could have hope of eternal life in him. So you see, the law brings death, but the gospel of Jesus brings life, and life abundantly. Even by our best obedience, friends, we can never prove ourselves worthy, deserving of God's favor for even a portion of it. But by the free grace of God, we receive that gift of eternal life and the freedom that comes with being children of God. So one day, Christian, one day, you and I will be free forever from sin and death that infects all of us in this fallen world. However, to ignore God, to reject His mercy, to go on living as if we're just fine on our own is, is actually to commit the deepest act of murder against ourselves. Because we deny our own life when we turn away from the open arms of Jesus. And friends, where you stand with the Lord is a matter of life and death. And the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus will come again to judge the world in righteousness. What will be your confidence on that day? Will it be your attempts to obey God's law? Will that stand the test? Is breaking only one out of ten commandments good enough? No. Only one who is perfectly righteous and holy and pure can stand before our holy God. And so all that's left for us to do is to cast ourselves on that one. And his name is Jesus to rest in his grace and receive his promise that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Before we close, there's two points of application I'd like us to draw from all of this. First, that if you want to be assured of your standing with God, simply trust in what Jesus has done for you. Trust in Christ. And even death itself will not have the final word over you. 
Because, friends, we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Death is what we earn by our deeds. But Jesus freely welcomes sinners to come to him in faith. And it's his pleasure to give us the kingdom. And we can be confident that if our faith is in him, we will live forever with him in glory. And two, if you're looking to Jesus in faith, you will be changed. Since the Lord has given you true and eternal life, even the foretaste now, since Christ was killed in your place, since he rose again to new life, never to die again, you are free, Christian, to truly obey and walk in his ways. Even in this short time of this life, uh, we are called to grow in our obedience to him. And so may we do that together. Encourage one another to put to death those things in us that, that really are the cause of our own death. And do it by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. What does this look like for you? What do you need to die to in your life? On the flip side, how is God calling you to protect and preserve the life of your family, of your friends, your co-workers? How could you be a life-giving influence with the people around you? Even more, how might you share of the bread of life with those in need? Life is the Lord's, to give and to take away. And the amazing thing is, He freely gives eternal life to all who trust in Him. So consider this, the Lord Jesus willingly gave up His own life for yours. And death could not stop Him. He is alive, now and forever. And so may that gospel truth be the motivation for you to set your hope fully on the glory that is to be revealed when Christ our Savior comes again, when death will be no more, and all we will know is life and peace. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. O oh Lord, you are truly good and gracious to us. Thank you for giving us a Savior who will not turn us away when we come to him in faith. Lord, help us to be humble people, to recognize that we have no room for bargaining, no room to show ourselves to be deserving or putting you in our debt. Lord, thank you that you freely give life to us and help us, O oh Lord, to take hold of that life in Jesus' name. Amen.